What's up, everybody? This is Lisa Fields, the founder and president of the Jude 3 Project. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for all of those who joined us by becoming a monthly partner um, after hearing um, me talk about it last um, podcast episode. So thank you so much. If you would like to join in and become a monthly financial partner, you can do so by mail. Um, if you go to Jude3Project.com and hit the donate um, tab, you have the option to get the address to mail it in or you could do it online and become a monthly partner that way um it's super easy it takes just a couple minutes and so thank you so much um also we realized that we didn't um post the last two of courageous the last two conversations of courageous conversations 2018 which was justice and sexuality so we will be releasing those um this week and next week um up now is justice it's a phenomenal conversation and i know you're going to enjoy it so without further ado let's get into it hello welcome to the jew3 project podcast i'm your host lisa fields i'm the founder of the jew3 project Today's Courageous Conversation is justice. What is biblical justice? And we have four scholars to help us navigate this topic that I'm excited about. The first is Dr. Charlie Dates. He is the senior pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago, Illinois, and also the host pastor for our event. The second is Dr. Yolanda Pierce. Dr. Pierce is the dean of Howard Divinity School. The third is Jamar Tisby. He is the president of The Witness, a black Christian collective. The fourth is Dr. Nicole Massey-Martin. She's a professor of, at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Well, excellent. Well, uh, let's get right into it. The first question, very first question is, please, can you uh, help us define what is biblical justice? What is biblical justice? Reparations. Okay. That was going to be a later question, but can you, <laughs> I affirm, can you, uh, can you, can you, can you push in a little more? Yeah. So justice uh, in the scriptures has much to do with making things right. And in order to make things right, uh, people who have been defrauded, uh, marginalized, manipulated, have to be restored uh, in order for things to be right. So justice is not simply saying, I'm sorry, uh, but justice is saying, I'm sorry, now here's what I'm going to do to give back what was taken from you. We, justice is a verb. We are called to do justice. So we are talking about a world in which we are caging small children. We're talking about a world in which our sons and our daughters may not come home to their parents if they are shot down in the street. We're talking about living in the richest nation in the world and there are hungry and homeless people that we step over on our way to church. So if we're going to talk about justice, we're going to talk about what does God require of us. At the heart of what it means to be a believer, to be a follower, to be someone who wants to speak on 
the work and the life of Jesus, you have to talk about justice. If there is no conversation about justice, if it is not at the very center, if it is beyond just the rhetoric, then you have to ask yourself, where are you? Are you really, truly in the presence and the witness of God? So justice is at the core of all that we do and, and all that we say that we are. And when it is absent, then we just have empty sound and clanging cymbals, and it means nothing. Okay, so uh, there's nothing to add to it. Uh, what is... No, that's a no. That's, okay. What, is, what does God require of us in doing the verb of justice? Can I say this as, before we, we yep. do that real fast? It's interesting that the cross is the clearest illustration of justice in the scriptures. So justice doesn't start with us. I think that's, the, that's not the right point of departure. He doesn't just require justice of us. He demonstrated justice by coming down and condescending and emptying himself and dying on a cross for us. And, and so that's a larger, more magnificent, more scandalous picture of justice than merely what's broken in the United States. It's what's broken in the world that God took initiative to do something about it to make us, make us right. I, I think that's a larger show, just a larger scope within which to kind of put our pen. We've heard discussions about who thought they believe rightly, but didn't practice Right, have the right practice, maybe thought they had right orthodoxy, but not right practice. Is it possible to be a Christian or to identify as a Christian and to not be actively engaged in justice so, or to be concerned with your definition of biblical justice? Yeah. You know, in preparing for this panel, I was trying to think about why this is an issue, I think, for um, many people, especially I think people of color, justice is a part of who God is. We serve a just God. And so um, acting out um, acts of justice and, and, and pleading and interceding on behalf of those who are marginalized and in need, it should be a natural part of who we are. But we're having this conversation because there is a disconnect between our orthodoxy, what we believe, and our orthopathy, how we feel, and our orthopraxy, what we do. So technically speaking, in spiritual formation, all of these, the head, the heart, the hands, have to work together. And our working out of that unity of what we think, how we feel, what we do, is part of the Christian life. None of us have it all at all times. None of us act exactly in what we believe. They say there's 19 inches between the head and the heart, that can feel like 19 miles. Sometimes we can know it up here and feel something different down here. So there is an internal act of justice. How do I reconcile what I believe with what I'm going to do that hopefully translates into an external justice? Now I'm going to do what I actually believe. I hope I haven't confused that issue, but I'm trying to say that in the perfect world, I would absolutely do everything I believe. Paul says it best in Romans 7. <laughs> like, in a perfect world, I would do everything I know that is right to do. But I don't. And I don't think that gives an excuse, which is why we have this tension between biblical justice and social justice. Biblical justice likes to live up here 
social justice likes to live here. Um, for me, it's a matter of semantics. Some people can't receive the notion of social justice because they align it with some rebellious act of a marginalized group. Um, as one of those people in that rebellious group of marginalized people, I call that biblical justice. So, so, so in a roundabout way, there's no one perfect way to work justice. And my heart grieves when on the margins we point fingers at those who protest and point, and those who protest point fingers at those who have offices saying you're not doing enough. For me, that reeks of sentiments of slave mentality where the house Negroes point to the field Negroes and we forget we're all Negroes. Um, and we forget that we're all on the same field. It's a matter of how you play your gifts. I know I went all the way around your question. And just going off of what you said, it's been very interesting. I think in some ways this panel may have, we'll see throughout the conversation, but may have some of the most sort of broad agreement yes, on issues of justice. And a lot of that comes from our experiences as people of color, both presently and historically. And so there's a sense in which people who are marginalized have a view of justice um, that, that they have an instinctual, visceral sense of what justice is because they have experienced so much injustice. And I find it one of the miracles of God's work in the church that black people were able to hear of Christ and the Christianity that slaveholders practiced, but in the midst of that, see through it to a message of real justice and liberation and part of the reason I think that was is because they had an experience of the way things are not supposed to be. And so they could hear in the gospel message the resonance and the echoes of the way things were supposed to be, even though that came through horrible injustices and sins perpetrated against them. I love that you raised the question of injustice, right? Because you can't have a conversation about justice without a conversation about injustice. And not, not only that, let's, let's press it a little bit and have a conversation about the fact that there is evil in the world yes. and not, am I, I'm not just even talking about um, personal evil personal sin, but I'm talking about structures and systems and powers that can be oppressive and evil and unjust. And so I think that there is a resonance for us to talk certainly about the personal as part of the work that we do as part of who we consider ourselves to be, but we also have to name it. And so to name those structures, structures and forces and systems and powers that are evil and unjust as a way to call forward God's justice is part of the work that we're called mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you touched on evil. So let me ask this question. Um, what if we've uh, identified and we've named the evils, um, do we, us believing that we serve and, and operate under an all knowing, all powerful God, how do we reconcile God being all powerful uh, either does he ordain or allow these evils? Does he punish it? And what is our role in calling out and fighting for justice in this theological paradigm in which we exist? Mm. Yeah, so fundamentally, I would say we live in a fallen and broken world that will not be made perfect while any of us are alive. Otherwise, heaven, we'd have no need for it. 
And so there's a sense in which we live in the complex problem of evil, which was fundamentally solved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, which I happen to believe. And I think for that reason, we are absolutely as a people, by people, I mean the church, Christians, called to protest any form of evil in any space where we find it. However, we do so knowing that the full cost of redemption and perfection has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And we therefore will not see the full consummation of his kingdom here on earth. So we live in that strange tension uh, between what is and what is not yet. And we do not, I think, live under the false pretense that no matter how many laws we change and make in the great experiment of democracy, that we somehow or another are going to create a utopia in the here and now. But the church has a prophetic voice and a prophetic conscience to bring the voice of God and what's right into a world that's confused about right or that doesn't want to acknowledge what's right. I see one of the things that I celebrate about an event like this is whatever our disagreements have been, there is a, a sense of a holistic message from Christ, from the Bible, however we may differently interpret that. Because I've, I say that because I've been in so many settings where there's this sharp dichotomy between what some would say was the gospel message and issues of justice. Mm -hmm. And that would be the whole panel conversation. Is there the gospel and justice? You know, to, to, to what degree is there a push and pull there? But I think marginalized people recognize that if you, what you believe is demonstrated by what you do and the way you love people and the way you interact with people. And so it's so interesting to me that we can have a substantive discussion about justice and we immediately look to the corporate, systemic, social dimensions of it because not everybody does. And I think that is a, a gift that we bring theologically and homiletically and ecclesiastically to the church universal, uh, and other marginalized people groups have this too, but the ability to see that, that, that these are artificial separations, that people, they may be useful in an academic context, uh, but when you live it out or when you're trying to be a Christian, you can't separate issues of right doing and right feeling and right believing as imperfectly as we live those out. What does it mean to be marginalized? Like uh, to put it very simply, I think it, it's, it's about power. And I don't think we talk enough in certain Christian circles about power. But Jesus wasn't afraid of power. All power is in God's hands. Uh, but when we talk about the kingdom in earlier panels, what we're talking about is flipping the way power is used on its head from an earthly uh, Dis distribution of power to a heavenly kingdom of God distribution of power, which means that the meek inherit the earth, that the poor in some senses are rich, and that the people who horizontally on a human level are pushed to the sides, often because of race, gender, or class, that they have dignity going all the way back to Genesis 1, being created in God's image. And so marginalization says whatever they say about you isn't true. It's not the final word. 
the final word is what God has already said about you. And you may achieve more power in this world. You may not. But what power you do have, you use in service of others. Uh, the greatest of you should be the least. I, I would add to that. I, I, a completely agree and affirm that about this question of power. And I would also say it's about who is silenced, who gets to speak, whose stories get to be told, um, whose traditions um, are uplifted, um, who, who is affirmed consistently as being made in the image and likeness of God and who is not, right? So, so that when it comes to this question of marginalized people, the questions of power are definitely operative, but, but I really want to point out something about who is silenced and who can speak. Part of what I think we've been doing all day, particularly on the panels that have really centered the biblical text, is, is we're talking about that, right? We're, we're talking about who's silenced, who gets to speak, who's named, who's unnamed, um, whose names do we know, whose names are admitted from, from the record. And that tells us something about the context in which that was written. It also tells us something about how we interpret, right? And so marginalized people, um, about lack of access to power, but also the systematic ways in which their stories and lives are silenced. And somehow being told that what you experience, what you are, who your folks are, who your kinfolk and mama and them are, are somehow lesser than Right. And so it's the way in which as a trained theologian and scholar, whatever I know and whatever I truly believe in my heart is only possible because of my grandmother mm -hmm. who wasn't trained and was not a theologian. Mm -hmm. But I learned at her knee and there's a way that her story can be silenced even in the very church that she loved. Right. Mm -hmm. Because of the vessel. Mm -hmm. And there's a way that my story can be lifted up because I'm a quote-unquote scholar. Um, so these issues of power come hand-in-hand hand with being, being silenced. That's part of the marginalization. If I'm in one of these marginalized groups and um, I am uh, tired of being silenced and unnamed and my heroes aren't, uh, there's no statues built of them, uh, I desire to um, change the system, right? I want to emulate a David Walker or John Brown, and I'm going to create a revolt to pursue justice. When do we know that justice or our pursuit for justice goes too far or does it go too far? Um, do is, does the, does the, does biblical justice give me the credence to uh, obtain dignity by all means necessary? Is there limits to my pursuit of justice? Cause I noticed you didn't say Nat Turner. <laughs> well, I, I think before we get to that, I, I keep hearing this thread in the back of my mind, this false perception of marginalization. What I mean is we are now living in a time where there are people who have access and power, but have this narrative going that they are marginalized. Um, I've met some of them. They feel they are under attack, that, um, you know, the more brown and black America becomes, that they are becoming more marginalized. And I want to be careful that, that we really are saying this is about power and access. This is about systematic power. This is about access. This is about systematic privilege and not just someone's perception of their own marginalization. Um, you know, how far is too far? 
is a hard question, and I know that's why you asked it. <laughs> it's a hard question because it takes into account, um, again, your own assessment of your gifts, your calling, your influence. Um, and, and I think that while it might be easy to say, well, I ascribe to a nonviolent way and therefore anything including violence is wrong, and that might be an easy line to draw on the sand. If there's violence, then it's wrong. Um, I need you to help me because I'm about to start a revolution this week. Right. I was, it, well, <laughs> Who's with me? And <laughs> while it might be easy to draw that line in the sand, I, I think we just have to be careful because the cross complicates things. You know, this was a... Jesus died a violent death. God used injustice to bring about justice. He, he did something that we'll never understand, the shedding of blood and the torture and the pain. Um, and yet he used that to bring about this glorious redemption. Um, so, so for me, our redemptive God is able to redeem anything. And if I were to look back on history and say, well, you got to draw the line here, I might not be sitting here. I am here because blood was shed. I am here because somebody marched so that I could vote. I am here because somebody did something audacious that someone else may have pointed a finger and said, no, you've gone too far. So I balance that tension for my own personal um, understanding of justice. I, I think every person of color, every person serious about justice should balance that. It's everybody should have a little Malcolm and a little Mal- Martin. Everybody should have a... But I, I, I struggle to say... This is right and this is wrong. Writing, okay. Well, that, 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 you know, stealing, okay, okay. If we're not talking about, if we're not talking about um, acts of sin, which are clearly indicated in scripture, I find it hard to say this action is right and this action is wrong when it comes to justice. Might I just add two cents? This is one of the beautiful illustrations of the civil rights movement to us, however, and I'm not highlighting the nonviolent part so much as to say it was anchored and rooted in the gospel, as far as we could tell. The gospel is the only message, event, that keeps the abused from becoming abusers once they get in power. And if you have the constraints and the restraints of the gospel, then you can look at your oppressors, know that you're equal to them, overcome them, and then not hold against them for the duration of eternity, what they've done against you. That's what makes what you just said so powerful. And that's why that message wrecks the world. There's nothing like that in all of the world. That's how we know we're not going too far is when the gospel is our guiding principle in how we think, how we live, how we behave. And I'm glad the, 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 the word and the concept nonviolence has come in and, and the civil rights movement has come because in some senses we look at the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s as sort of the, the paradigmatic example of the power of peaceful protest, which in many ways it was, but part of studying history is simply to complicate simple narratives and, and what did nonviolence actually mean, particularly to the practitioners? And the lines are fuzzier than we like to recall. Um, and, and, and so even Martin Luther King Jr., who was the, the proponent, the most outspoken proponent in that age of nonviolence, uh, he, if you read Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, has a whole chapter devoted to black power. And, and, he, and even though he has his critiques, he's very sympathetic to the concerns in the movement. And even those protesters who would call themselves nonviolent protesters separated that from what they called self-defense. 
And so I know at the end we asked for resources, but one I'll throw out now is a book by Timothy Tyson called Radio Free Dixie. And it's, by Robert, it's about Robert F. Williams, who was um, the leader of the NAACP in, in Monroe, North Carolina. He got kicked out because he advocated for what he called um, uh, uh, armed self-defense. And it was purely defensive in the sense that he was not advocating people go out and hunt down Ku Klux Klaners, but he was saying that if somebody comes to my yard and my house with my wife and my children and my family and my friends on the line, guess what? I was in the military, I know how to use a gun, and I'm going to. And he actually set up defensive barricades one night when he was under attack and knew they would come by, and he got his friends, uh, who all were trained in firearms, especially in the South, it's a way of life, um, and they actually repelled an attack. And that was a use of violence for what he thought was a just cause. And, and, and Fannie Lou Hamer kept shotguns in every corner of the house that she stayed in because if night Riders came by and shot at her, she was going to shoot back. And so it's a very complicated picture. One of my professors put it this way. We often think of the parable of the Good Samaritan and helping once we see that person bruised and bloody and would we do the same. And he posed the question, what if you passed by the, the person while they were getting beaten? Would you then intervene violently, or how would you intervene in the name of justice? And I don't have an answer. Or why don't we just but, but fix the good. Jericho Road so people don't get beat right, up? No how about more. that? Let people Absolutely. Get beat up. I'm Absolutely. sure somebody got some street <laughs> lights. Right. We could put some security out there so you ain't getting busted 19 miles down the road. I was going to say, I, I love you raising the tension of it, but when we raise the tension, we automatically go to the civil rights movement. But I wasn't kidding when I went to Nat Turner. I wasn't kidding to say, that we then have to think about Nat Turner and Denmark Vesey and all these unnamed men and women um, who believed in God and believed that God had called them forward to these actions. Right. And so we can't only talk about it and go to the 1950s and the 1960s. If we're going to talk about it, we have to talk about these acts of resistance, this quest for human dignity and freedom since we arrived to these shores over four, almost 400 years ago. So would you like to I, I want to hear because I've, I've heard Dr. Martin and you've kind of uh, touched on it a little bit. Acts of resistance, like Dr. Pierce speaks on, like the Denmark Vissies and the Nat Turners. Uh, and I know we all thank God for uh, the providence of violent acts that have set us, that have liberated us. But how do you gentlemen feel about those particular acts, like offensive, not just being self-defensive, but being offensive in the face of injustice? Do you have any thoughts on that, like today? for individuals who feel marginalized? And is there, uh, is there ever a way in which we go too far in being offensive towards fighting for liberation and justice? So everybody's looking at me. I don't know that I know anything about <laughs> like the answer. I will say this about the Bible piece. You know, the Bible is both descriptive and prescriptive. Let's not act like everything in there God wants us to repeat. Like, I'm sure... Second Samuel 11, David and Bathsheba. He doesn't want me to do that. You know, like I could get up to church and be like, guys, I had to experience what David did. So I just had an affair. 
And uh, did you see what I'm saying? That's ridiculous. But it's but it's left on record because God can deal with the human mess and he can work in and through the human mess to bring about his providence. But he's not prescribing that we go start messes for him to work through and in. And so I would say just directly, no, God's not calling us to a violent revolt right now. I mean, I just, this is going to be on TV, so I can't really like say what I want to say. I really can't. Unless Lisa, we could get this one thing I want to say struck off. But, but the, there are all kind of violent things some of us wish would be done. It would just, it would just make some stuff real simple. I could give you one clear example, but um, I'm, I'm not going to do it. I want to protect my ministry and, and my, my integrity. But, but that you cannot honor God through means that he has not sanctioned as honorable. Yes, right. and, and so anytime we take justice into our own hands, we're making ourselves candidates for the wrath of God. It's better to just let God tell you when to stand up and fight and when to let him tell you to turn the other cheek and to sit down and let him we used to sing this song, God will fight your battles if you just keep still. It takes wisdom to know the voice of God in that regard. So the, 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 the two thoughts that came uh, to, to me, uh, one, it's highly contextual. So if we're talking 1919, uh, the Red Summer, where there are race riots, and by race riots, I mean white people perpetuating violence toward black people. Uh, I mean, what do you do when in East St. Louis, a, a mob of, of white men literally pulls a family, they, they, they disconnect the electrical lines that run the streetcar, so the car stops. They pull the family off, which is a husband, a wife, uh, there are two children, one, one a young man, one a young woman. Uh, and, and the woman is, is beaten so bad she's knocked unconscious. She awakes in an ambulance. Her husband and son are dead, and her, her daughter is still knocked out. It, that environment, or in 1819 or 1719, is, is vastly different than uh, the, the, the era we live in in terms of marginalization, which ain't good either way you cut it. Uh, but I'm not prepared to say to, to, to Nat Turner, don't do it. I'm not prepared to say to Henry McNeil Turner, who advocated for armed uprising to people who were still enslaved, don't do it. At the same time, I agree with you. What, what are we reading and learning from in the scriptures? And so I don't have a hard and fast answer on that. Um, I just think that as believers, we, 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 the, the second thought is what constitutes resistance and what constitutes violence? Uh, because right now we're talking about the physical realm. Um, but violence is, can occur verbally. It can occur emotionally. It can occur personally and structurally. Um, violence perpetrated against you. And you can also perpetrate violence in these different ways. And therefore, which gets to some of the comments you were making, what does resistance look like? Uh, one of the biggest mass resistance in U.S. history was the Great Migration, where they resisted 
the overt racial oppression that they were experiencing in the Jim Crow South by leaving and coming to Chicago, which my friend calls North Mississippi, uh, because that pipeline is there, right? That was a form of resistance or the poisoning of the food or even the slowing down of the work or the breaking of farm implements uh, so that they couldn't do the work were all forms of resistance. So this conversation quickly becomes very complicated when we think about the lived reality of people in a marginalized and oppressed position. Again, no answers, but hopefully some more thought-provoking so, so it becomes complicated because, Pastor, you, you brought this up because that was on, on my list of things to talk about, particularly when we introduce a question like reparations, right? Because we can talk about reparations. I believe in reparations. I have a developed theology around reparations, but I can also have their other brothers and sisters in Christ who would be very resistant to this notion that the descendants of African peoples in this country deserve reparation, right? I can point out chapter and text. I can look at it from a financial, psychological, economic point of view, right? Um, but we also know that in many of our churches, that might be a hard sell. And throughout the body of Christ, that might be a hard sell. And I say that, that to say, let's also not pretend that we all agree on what justice is and what justice may look like, right? I think that the question of reparations for the descendants of enslaved African peoples is one of the most important questions that I can ask as a scholar. And I believe for myself as a Christian, as a minister, as a scholar, reparations is at the top of what I think about when I think about what justice is. Cornell West says that love is what justice looks like in public, right? So that so if we talk about love, love and justice go hand in hand to me. But I've also had many conversations with some brothers and sisters who, in Christ who are just like, I don't believe that that's a just thing. So I simply want to, to stir it up, right, and to suggest that we're not always going to be in agreement even around this question of justice. I believe that I have a biblical um, sanctification and, and sanctification, both <laughs> that um, as well as justification for the question of reparations mm. for the descendants of enslaved African peoples. Someone can interpret the text very, very differently than that, yeah. right? So these questions that we're talking about are not settled, yeah. right? They're not settled at all. Even the historical interpretations of the Red Summer or enslavement or these acts of resistance are very, very different depending on the lens that you're looking at it through. Mm. I see acts of resistance where someone else sees rebellion, right? right? Someone sees a riot, and I see the language of the unheard. We can't all ways pretend that we're in agreement, even in the body of Christ. So as we're, some of us are a part of institutions or have been a part of institutions that have benefited from the economic benefits of, of slavery and injustice in this country. And as we we're talking about reparations, you brought that to the table. What are some practical things that maybe you would like to see or that we can begin to discuss with some of the endowments from universities or institutions that can be uh, uh, thought through on how to implement justice in the form of reparations here in this country? I think there are some very concrete things. Now, I, I will say this, and I don't care if it's on camera. If you want to write me a check, I will be happy to accept a check. So let, let's be clear. But I don't think reparations is always about the check. And I think that's where people get, you know, so like, who gets the check? Who doesn't get the check? Well, I'd like a check. And so make one out to me. Um, 
reparations can look like a number of things. There were years of jubilee. How about some loan forgiveness for some folks? There you go. Reparations, I mean, (laughs) reparations can look like, how about, we were just talking about Mississippi. There are areas in Mississippi and Virginia and Alabama where rather than desegregate the schools, they actually close the schools. And so we're still dealing with generations of reduced literacy because racism was so prevalent, right, that they said, no, we'd rather close these schools than let these children go to school together. How how about we open up literacy and learning centers? Reparations, right, means to repair, to restore. So not simply an apology, although I'll take the apology as well, but the repentance requires the restoration. So what I'm suggesting is there are concrete measures this nation can do and has done in the past when it's wanted to repair the damage that it has done. And countries overseas. That's right. Is there anything that churches uh, can call themselves to uh, practically um, in participating in the act of reparations? And that's something I just want to add to that question. One of the um, questions I often get is in terms of justice, what can Christians do individually and what should be done in the name of the church in an institutional sense? So whether it's progressive Baptist church is, and this is a a lot of on issues um, or maybe a political issue or what, what is, what can Christians do as individual Christians who are also citizens and concerned about justice versus what is to be done in the name of the church in terms of justice. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm just curious. Well, I think I think it's easier for me to answer that question by what happens when the church doesn't do something um, engaging in systematic and individual just, in justice. So I think, you know, part of the lack of relevance in conversations of today is because there has been only a pietistic conversation in the church. So we only talk about personal salvation, and we only talk about taking Jesus into your heart, but we don't, um, and we have not been at the forefront of, of conversations or at the forefront of protests or at the forefront of teaching people how to resist. Um, I think one of the joys that I've seen having grown up in the black church is we've always, I've always been a part of churches that have tried to have some financial empowerment. Now on the, you know, on the issue of reparations, I mean, it's, it's both obvious and hard. It's obvious to me because I know what the value of land was. And I know even going up to the GI bill and, you know, I had uh, grandparents on both sides of my family that were denied loans for houses, even having come back from war. So there, there are lots of conversations um, that need to be had with that. Um, Can the black church go knock on the door of a white church and say, give us the land? Well, there's, there's a conversation of wisdom there. I wouldn't say no, <laughs> but I would say that there is wisdom in their strategy necessary for that. So how have I seen strategy in, in uh, marginalized churches? I've seen it in financial empowerment classes. I've seen it in, you know, talking about what it means to be debt-free. I think um, there are lots of churches that do that very well, that don't just talk about being free in Christ, but actually offer classes to get you free um, on a number of levels. I think that's a very tactical way to handle it. Um, but I think that if you don't deal with... Um, the systematic understanding of your theology, then you're stuck with this individual thing. And I think when churches don't engage in systematic issues, the church is irrelevant. Um, in Charlotte, 2016, you know, we had this huge riots and protests in Charlotte. And it was a white friend of mine that said, come on out in the streets. 
I was like, no, I live this every day. I'm not going out. Because in my own sense of dealing with my own marginalization, I was exhausted. I was tired of always being the voice and always being the squeaky wheel. And on that particular night, I have a three and a five-year-old. I was tired because I got kids. But, you know, she wouldn't let up. And I, and I thank God for that because when I got out there, I was grieved by the absence of the church. And the pastors that I saw were all gathered together talking amongst themselves. And I said, this is why they listen to Jay-Z better than, you know, the church. This is why the church seems irrelevant because when we do show up, we don't show up with the power of, of that Christ has invested in us to change the system. So for me, it really is a belief. Do I deeply believe that the institution God has placed in this broken world, the church of Jesus Christ, has power to change and to act in God's justice? Do I deeply believe that? Do I believe the church has power? And it's a hard question. I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe the church has power. I'm on this panel because I think the church has power. Um, but I, I, I pray that we can begin some tactical things to demonstrate that power in relevant and clear and public ways and not just individual pietistic ways. We've talked about um, great... Yeah, clap it up. I don't want to... <laughs> We've talked about great Christian uh, movements, um, civil rights movements, uh, uh, etc., um, they not only had great courage, but they demonstrated great love, right? Um, but today it seems like there could be a little, um, I guess, uh, disdain. A lot of our millennial Christians see their views or their practices as antiquated and old and out, 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 outdone. Um, how do we, what does it mean to love your enemy uh, and today as being marginalized and recognizing that you've been silenced, but yet and still you're fighting for justice while at the same time trying to love your enemy. Is it possible? What does it mean? How do you, how do you encourage us to do so? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'll say what it doesn't mean. Um, and, and, and let me unpack the phraseology here. So many people have argued about whether we live in a post-racial America. Obviously, we do not. We may, though, I think, live in a post-racial reconciliation America. And what I mean by that is what we have made reconciliation out to be. Now, I think reconciliation is a biblical word that we can talk about the definition of in, in that sense, but, but what racial reconciliation has become in America is can we sit next to each other on Sunday or in any other environment? Uh, can we be colorblind? Can we let the past be the past and move forward? I don't think that's actually loving your neighbor because it's not forcing your neighbor to confront the injustice that is still prevalent today. It's, it's, a, it's a superficial kind of go-along to get-along uh, response. And I think actually loving your neighbor sometimes looks like confronting him or her with the truth, which, by the way, America has yet to do about its most obvious foundational flaw, which is racism, white supremacy, enslavement, and, and the legacy thereof. And so... Today, our mission continues to be as exhausting as it is to be that squeaky wheel, um, which brings up the conversation of self-care, which is very important. Um, but I think what, what it doesn't look like is there was a recent conversation 
in media about this word civility. And I think we have to be very careful with that word because, as you've mentioned before, what pursuing justice, it, it can look, what to one group looks like pursuing justice to the other group is rebellion. And uh, to one group, what is civility to the other group is passivity. And you're telling me to be content with my situation of injustice. So what, it, what, what, what loving one's neighbor in the midst of pursuing justice is not is somehow softening the truth in a way that doesn't force us to confront the full reality of injustice. Because if we fail to do that, then we can't pursue the full reality of justice. So I don't. I want to be really honest here because I flew all the way to Chicago. So I'm just going to tell the truth. I don't think black folk have any trouble loving their neighbors. That's true. true. But it is hard for us to learn how in this world filled with white supremacy to love ourselves. Loving ourselves is a radical act. I'm not talking self-care. I'm talking loving ourselves, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you're not treating your neighbor right because you don't know how to love yourself. And so for me, part of what this is, is, is I am astonished by the beauty of black folk who did not turn around and, and try to oppress their oppressors. But I'm also sitting with that lack of self-love and that lack of self-care that is the legacy of systematic oppression. And so maybe if there's something I want to do, is it about loving ourselves more, loving the beauty of ourselves more, loving the beauty of our people more, loving ourselves from the pulpit, loving ourselves enough to rebuke someone who is going to touch someone while she's getting ready to perform, loving the beauty of ourselves not to make jokes about people's bodies from the pulpit. Like, how How do we love ourselves in our skin and our hair and our bodies in a world that has tried to convince us we are ugly and not worthy of being loved? That's the radical act, right? And so from there flows all of the issues of love others and love justice. I wish we could see ourselves the way God sees us. When we get there, then we are somewhere. We, we've managed, I'm, I'm astonished, we have managed to love our neighbors. Ooh, I got some neighbors. We've managed to love our neighbors because they are yet here. So I've managed to love my neighbor, right? But in a world that, that, that wants to deny us value, how we love ourselves, that's critical. That, that's critical. That is, that is a profoundly liberatory and godly act. That's right. You have just raised all this stuff for me that is so true is that the one minute time i'm sorry she was telling i think i'm getting uh but i'm just gonna let you guys get final thoughts i'm gonna let you answer the question and do real through a final thought it shows up very simply it shows up in that question of how black can i be how woman can i be in these particular instances and we begin to um it's this meshing of of a bit of self-loathing and a bit of self-denial that we deny our full selves in certain spaces in order to love others. But then the result is we've, in a, we've tried to love others, but we've also hated ourselves in the process. Mm. That's all. Mm. That was, I had nothing to add. That was amazing. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, I need some help. Cause I think I love myself more than Kanye loves himself. So I, 
And that's a lot of love, bro. That's a lot of love. I, I, I may be loving myself wrong, I guess. I don't know. Maybe that is a lot of love. So we need to talk because maybe I'm not doing it right. I don't know. Can you guys please give a round of applause to our panelists? We got to do this. We got to do this. Truth's Table. They did a whole series on reparations. Yes, yes. And so that conversation we got into in terms of pointing people to resources to Truth Tables piece on reparations. Oh, yeah. Now. Yes, yes. The, the podcast is great. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune in to all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.